Well, why don't you turn in your Bibles this morning to Titus, Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3. And it is a joy to actually say these words that we have come to the end of Titus. Um, I, I've never gone through an entire book uh, verse by verse, uh, at least co-taught it with someone. But I can say that it's been a true joy to preach through the book of Titus and we reached the end and I, I hope that you've seen what I've seen and that the book of Titus is so vital for the church. It's, it's a church manual. It's a church manual. And we've entitled the series, God's Glorious Design for His Church. And so what does that design entail in the book of Titus? Well, as I was looking back, uh, I know we, we went through it fairly fast, fairly swiftly. We went through uh, eight sermons on the book of Titus. Most men would probably take at least 30. Um, so I, I, we went a, a quick pace. Why? Well, because there's eight weeks for the sabbatical. That's, that's why. But if I were to come up with what's the summary of the book of Titus, I, I put pen and paper together and I came up with nine marks of a healthy church. Nine marks. These are my own nine marks, not a different nine marks from someone famous, but these are my own that I have concluded from the book of Titus. And so why don't you look in your Bibles in the book of Titus. A healthy church must be, number one, be marked uh, as one who is a preaching church. They must be a preaching church. Titus chapter 1 verse 1 says uh, this, uh, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the full knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which the God who cannot lie promised from all eternity, but at the proper time manifested his word in preaching with which I was entrusted. So the main task of the church, the main task of the healthy church is preaching. And so what do you preach? You preach the cross, you preach godliness, you preach theology. All of that in the first four verses. The second mark of the church must be an elder-led church. It must be an elder-led church. You see that in verses 5 to 16. The qualifications of an elder and its three descriptions as elder, overseer, and pastor. And so the church needs strong leaders both to feed the sheep and to warn away the wolves. The third mark of a healthy church is that it must be a discipling church. Our passage that we read this morning in Titus chapter 2, 1 to 10 or 2 through 8, there's a pattern that you see of older saints discipling younger saints. So here in the church, you must be either discipling someone or being discipled. You never just attend the church. You're discipling, teaching someone or learning from someone at some point in your Christian life. The fourth mark is that a, a healthy church must be a sanctified church. In Titus 2, 11 to 15, God empowers His church to deny ungodliness and worldliness. As, and the weapon that God uses is grace. Because the grace that justifies is also the grace that sanctifies. The fifth mark is that the church must be a doctrinally sound church. The constant refrain in the book of Titus is the church must be sound in doctrine. And that word sound is the word healthy. Must be hygiene. Uh, the word for hygiene we have, which is to be healthy. 
And if you want to be a healthy Christian, you must listen to healthy teaching, sound teaching. And how do you know something is sound? Because it's according to the Word of God. According to the Word of God. And that doctrine involves teaching about everything in the Christian life, membership, ordinances, baptism, communion, doctrine, all of these things is part of what it means to be in a sound, a doctrinally sound church. The sixth mark is is the healthy church must be a witnessing church. A witnessing church. In in chapter 2, verse 7, he says this, In all things show yourself to be a model of good works. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. It says in Titus that the, the church ought to put on the doctrine of God like a garment. In chapter 2, verse 10, that we're to wear something. Our life is a demonstration of the change that has happened. And so we are a witness to this watching world of the Christ that we proclaim. So our witness as Christians must be visible. The seventh mark is that we must be a serving church. We must be a serving church. Show yourself a model of good works. In verse 14, Jesus purchased us to be zealous for good works. In chapter 3, verse 8 and verse 14, we are to engage in good works. Luther said that we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by service, by good works. And last week, we looked at a healthy church must be a purifying church. In chapter 3, verse 9 to 11, you see that that text there, that the church will be filled with sinners who at times can cause trouble by their foolishness, which can lead to sin, and so that we are to avoid, warn, and reject certain men, factious men, in order that the church would be kept pure as the bride of Christ. And the, the last mark, the final mark, the last mark of a healthy church is in our passage here, in the conclusion, in verses 12 to 15, and that is that the church, a healthy church, must be a mission-minded church. A mission-minded church. In this last section, we are going to see that a healthy church must be mission-minded. That, means, that is to say that a church's ministry must go beyond its own four walls. It must leave this room. It must leave this place. It must go outside this place. This ministry does not exist only within the walls of this building, but it must go beyond. And so this morning, I want to show that God's design for missions, God's design for missions is always through the church who selects, supports, and sends out His people. So this is a a message about missions this morning, about the mission-minded church. Now, I know you're thinking to yourself, I don't really think much about missions. Some of you may be young in the faith, or young in your age, or young overall, and you're thinking of things that are dominating, such as graduation. It's the season of graduation. You're thinking, "I'm, I'm about to graduate. My focus is graduation. My focus is marriage. For some of you, my focus is I just got engaged. I want to be married. Some of you, my focus is money. I'm too young to be thinking about missions. And then on the other hand, some of you are thinking, well, I'm old. I'm retired. I'm too tired to be uh, thinking about missions. I'm not one to go out there and do missions. And then there's some of you that are not old or young, but you're somewhere in the middle and you're thinking to yourself, well, I have family responsibilities. I'm too busy for missions. I want to show that missions has no boundaries in age. 
It is something that the church, young and old, new or old, must be concerned about. And so the mission-minded church, the first thing it must do is select the right people. Go in Titus chapter 3, verse 12. Let's read our passage, and then I'll pray. I didn't pray yet, right? I didn't pray. So let's, let's read our passage, and then we'll pray. Uh, verse 12 to 15. When I sent Artemis, or Tychicus, to you, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And our people must also learn to lead in good works, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me, greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we need help this morning to understand your truth. We have the mind of Christ, but yet we are hindered by distraction. We are hindered by our flesh. We are hindered by our mornings, maybe, or distracted by our week that we've had. And so I pray that for this next few moments, that you would give us clarity in understanding what your design is for your church in this final section regarding a church that ought to be preoccupied, dominated by the reality that ministry must continue, must go on outside of us. It must go beyond our walls. It, it must go to the next generation, to the next people group, to, to other nations. And so I pray, help me now to proclaim this truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the first thing that a mission-minded church must do is select the right people. Select the right people. Here, there's two persons that are named. Paul says to Titus, when I sent Artemis or Tychicus to you, may every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. So in these closing verses, what we actually see is the heart of Paul as a pastor. I, I would argue that this is probably one of the best parts of the book is the closing. Because here you see the heart of Paul, his heart for missions, his heart to go forth, his heart to send people to move people around so that the work of gospel ministry will take place. He has a desire to always be sending people out. And so he sends people, Artemis and Tychicus. Now where do we see this heart of Paul? What is it that fuels his motor to do this? Well, go back to Titus chapter 1. It's in the very beginning. Go back to Titus 1. It's what we looked at from the very beginning where we see the heart of Paul that's gripped by who he is and what he is called to. In verse 1, it says, "Is Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect. Let me just stop there. There's this statement that has fueled Paul. He describes two relationships. He first of all, firstly says that he is a slave of God. Some translations may say bondservant. Some may say servant, but the idea is really a doulos, a slave, one who is owned by God, which means that he does whatever God is commanding him to do. He is a slave owned, not one he leaves like a servant can leave and find other work, but one who is owned as a slave of God. Secondly, he speaks of his relationship to God as an apostle of Christ, indicating that he is an ambassador, a representative speaking on the, behalf, on the behalf of another. So when Paul speaks, he's not speaking of his own authority. 
He's speaking of someone else's. He's speaking as one who is both committed and convicted to this task of missions. I must speak for the faith of God's elect, is what he says. And so to have a missionary mindset, we must carefully select the right people. And that's exactly what we see Paul doing in the lives of Artemis and Tychicus. We must pick the right people. And that's important for us to do in this day and age because too many are entering ministry and they're not qualified men and they're not proven men. They begin a work having never been proven. There's many pastors today that are launching off churches, launching off missions, that, and yet these men are neither qualified nor are they proven. Today there is a very unhealthy entrepreneurial attitude towards ministry. It's viewed as someone who has a great idea and they are passionate about that idea and they pursue that idea and they take people along to follow their ideas. God states that elders must be first qualified by an internal calling and that is affirmed externally by the church. The church needs men who have been proven, who can vouch for their effectiveness that they can say, this man is faithful, this man is proven, this man is qualified, this man has shown fruit in his life and ministry. If he's shown fruit in his ministry here, he will more than likely show fruit in his ministry there. He must be fruitful here in order to be fruitful there. And that's what we see here. We see Paul vouching for Artemis and Tychicus. Because at one point, at some point in the future, the work that Titus has in Crete will come to an end and he will be relieved by one of these two men. One of these two men. Now, who are they? Who is Artemis and who is Tychicus? Well, all we know of Artemis is what we have in this verse. That's all we know of him. He was a companion of the Apostle Paul. His name is not mentioned anywhere else. But because he was named first in between Tychicus and Artemis, his name being named first, he must have been a man of great leadership quality. He was one who was a leader and one whom Paul trusted. But Tychicus, on the other hand, we know a lot about him. His name is mentioned in at least five places in the New Testament. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Here we first read of of Tychicus. And here's the scene. Uh, Go back to 19. The situation is the following where Paul is stirring up trouble in Ephesus. Why the trouble? In Acts chapter 19, verse 23, we read about that there is a not a small disturbance concerning the way. That's what Christianity was called. It wasn't called Christianity, it was called the way. And then in verse 24, here's why there was trouble. Because there was a man by the name of Demetrius. Now watch this. He was a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. Not Artemis Argi, but Artemis of this goddess. And it was bringing... No little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workers of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity is from this business. What's the business? Idol making. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable crowd, saying that the things made with hands are not God's at all. He's basically shutting down idol factories through the preaching of Christ. People are getting saved and turning from dead idols to serve the living and true God. And so there's an uproar. There is 
there is riots that are developing. So when you turn to Acts chapter 20, you see this. Now, after the uproar had ceased, verse 1, there's an uproar that's been caused by Paul closing down. There's a riot that is taking place. And then he leaves Ephesus, and then he goes to Greece. And then it says in verse 3, and there he spent three months in Greece, and then found out that when he arrived, there was a plot, really an assassination plot, to kill him by the Jews. Now, why am I saying all this history? Because who was with Paul during all of this riots, assassination plots? Well, look in chapter 20, verse 4. There's a group of men that are listed. And notice who was with Paul. He was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, we know him, and Tychicus. There's our man, and Trophimus of Asia. These men, I can tell you they're not from Sacramento, these men with these kinds of names. These men are with Paul and all of them saw something about what it means to follow Christ. The first quality of the right people is that they are courageous men. They are courageous men because here's the courage that they had in Paul. Paul was pursued after. He was persecuted. He was one that always found trouble. Tychicus knew what it meant to be a follower of Christ. He saw the cost of being a Christ follower from his mentor, Paul. And that involved uproars, beatings, assassination attempts on your life. And so here's the situation. Tychicus had every opportunity to tap out and say, I will not follow this Christ. I will either abandon the faith or cower and do far less for the Savior than all of that. But instead, Tychicus remains loyal to the Savior. He means he, he's loyal to the Savior by being loyal to Christ. What's amazing, dear friends, is that Tychicus never felt ashamed of following Christ. Beloved, did you know that Christ has more reasons to be ashamed of us than we are to be ashamed of Him? We need courageous men like Tychicus who have counted the cost to follow Christ. And so we must select courageous men. But secondly, notice who else God selects. Not just courageous men, but faithful men. Go to Ephesians. Turn to your right. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Let's look at another quality of, of Tychicus. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21, what else do we find out about this brother? It says in Ephesians 6, 21 to 22, But that you may also know about all my affairs, how I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will make everything known to you. He is a faithful minister in the Lord. Tychicus was faithful in the big things, in the little things. When he was asked to go back to Ephesus, remember Paul leaves Ephesus, he said, Tychicus, you have to go back. Tychicus said, no problem, I'll go. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, Tychicus, again it's mentioned, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow slave, he too is a slave in the Lord. Tychicus is known as a fellow slave, a sundolos, a one who is just like Paul, one who is also owned by Christ one who labors to the same degree as others. He was willing 
to do ministerial work in the biggest church at Ephesus or do the most mundane things and leave the mega church of Ephesus and do little things like possibly carry a letter to the churches of Philippi, Colossae, and some would e- and even Philemon, a letter to Philemon. The big or small, it did not matter. God desires to use not just faithful men, but also humble men. Humble men. Because when Paul wrote letters, he wrote letters to two people. Just think of this with me. There's the pastoral epistles that Paul wrote. And he addressed those letters to two people by name. Timothy and Titus. In both letters, Tychicus is always involved, but Tychicus was never the main guy. He was never the main man. He was always the backup guy. He was always the guy that was second. He was the backup to Timothy. Tychicus was the backup to Titus. He was the letter courier for the letter to the Colossians, the Ephesians, and the book of Philemon. He could have asked to do more, but instead he, his labor was enough. Why? Because he did not pursue the applause of men, but Tychicus pursued the pleasure of his Lord. It didn't matter how he served, but that he served. See, the heart of a man who is humble, the heart of a woman who is humble is not the position that they hold, but that they serve. It doesn't matter. I pray that may the Lord raise up godly men and women at TCBC who are fellow slaves of Christ committed to serving God that no matter what the labor entails, no matter how visible or invisible, no no matter how prominent or hidden, no matter how little attention that work receives, that we would serve and be men and women of humble attitudes serving. So the mission-minded church must look for men who are humble, men who are faithful, men who are courageous, men and women. These are the kinds of men that we ought to support, send, like Tychicus and like Artemis. So a mission-minded church must select the right kind of people. Must select the right kind of people. Secondly, go back to Titus. The mission-minded church must also support teachable people. Support teachable people. In verse 13 we read this, Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Notice that the first two men are sent out. Then there's two other men that are supported or help, to be helped. And he mentions Zenos and Apollos. Now again, Zenos is named first. He was probably a preacher, a powerful preacher. And by his name, it's a Greek name, he was by his vocation a lawyer. It's more likely that Zenos was an expert in Roman law and not the Mosaic Law because of his Greek name, which means gift of God. So he he was probably not Jewish. Uh, he was more than likely a converted Greek. But he's associated with Apollos. That would make him a preacher like Apollos. Now, just a little footnote. What's interesting is out of all the lawyers in the New Testament, there's a lot of lawyers that are mentioned. This is the only lawyer that's a Christian. No offense to lawyers. <laughs> This is the only Christian lawyer that we know of, is Venus. All the others are not very nice lawyers. But here we have Venus, the lawyer. But here, we don't know much about Zenos, but we know much about Apollos. We first meet him in Acts 18. Go back to Acts, and let's look at who is Apollos. Who is this Apollos? 
in Acts 18, verse 24, the first thing we learn about Apollos is that he was a learned or educated man. He was an educated man. Notice in verse 24, it says this, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, I'm in chapter 18, verse 24, he was a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, arrived at Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. He was eloquent. That is to say, he was learned. He was learned, which meant he was taught in the very best schools in Alexandria, Egypt. Though he was not raised in Jerusalem, Alexandria had a strong Jewish population that it was, Im- and that immersed Apollos both in Greek philosophy and Jewish theology. So this man was trained in the very best schools, the Alexandrian schools. So he was very educated. And not only was he educated, but he was mighty in the Scriptures. He was mighty. He knew the Scriptures. In the ESV it says that he was competent in the Scriptures. Or the NIV describes him as one who spoke with great fervor. And that phrase of one being mighty in the Scriptures, that's only reserved for Apollos. No one else in the entire New Testament has that quality given to them of being mighty in the Scriptures except for Apollos. That says something. That his understanding of the Scriptures is so high, at such a high level, that that title of being mighty in the Scriptures was reserved only for him. was only reserved for him. That means that he had ability to proclaim He was a holy terror for his opponents. This power was given by his bold preaching in the synagogues that he would proclaim. And there was an authority to his preaching by his understanding of the Scriptures. That's what fueled the authority that he had. But notice, as educated as a man as Apollos was, and as mighty in the Scriptures as he was, he was also a very teachable man. A very teachable man. It says in verse 25 in Acts, it says this, this man, this Apollos, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. Again, that's Christianity. That's what it was called early on, the way. And being fervent in spirit, there's a lot of zeal in this man. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So he was accurate, but here's what he wasn't. He wasn't complete. You can be accurate in one thing. Be very accurate in this one thing. And he was accurate in the Scriptures regarding the baptism of John, but he was not complete. He didn't see that the Savior had already come until someone pulls him aside. And in verse 26, we hear of this couple. In verse 26, And he began to speak out boldly. Here's Apollos, mighty in the Scriptures, boldly speaking in the synagogue. But when Priscilla... And Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What's striking is here is Apollos, a very teachable man. He's a learned Jew. And he's being taught by first, not Aquila, that's the man, but, but, but by Priscilla, the woman. She's listed first, probably because she was more theologically astute than her husband, Aquila. And that should be an encouragement to us. May we not think that only men can understand the depth of theology. Men and women. 
women ought to be expositors of the Word of God. Women ought to be mighty theologians in the things of God. It's not reserved only for men, but women must comprehend these things, just like Aquila and Priscilla. And so as Priscilla pulls him aside along with her husband and teaches him. And this is biblical. She's not exercising authority over him, but pulls him aside privately with her husband there. And Apollos was teachable because he wasn't concerned about his reputation. He was more concerned about being accurate and complete in the things of God. He was the kind of man that Paul said who handled accurately the Word of God. So that that required him being teachable. Because what Apollos was wondering is not, oh no, I'm being taught by a woman, what will people think of me? His thought was not about what people thought. His thought was, what does God think of me? What does God think of me? I am to accurately handle the Word of God. And that's the kind of men that we ought to look for. Teachable men, faithful men, courageous men. Teachable missionaries are those that we ought to support. Not necessarily giftedness. Not necessarily giftedness. There are some teachers, there are some men and women that are very gifted. In a recent interview, John MacArthur, when he asked about the the problem with many uh, leaders in the church, and he said, sometimes the gift of glib is both a blessing and a curse. You could have a mouth that can speak so eloquently, but sometimes you rely too much on your giftedness and you don't watch your life and doctrine carefully. And so what what ends up happening is these men who are so witty with their words, that are so hip and so cool with their words, they forfeit the primary command of watching your life and doctrine. The fear of God starts to dissipate. There's so much reliance on his giftedness to speak because he has the gift of glibness, of glab, and being able to speak to people. So instead, be a man or a woman who fears God. Oh God, I pray that we that you would raise up faithful and teachable men and women who can be supported here. We want to be able to support such people. Support them in our own finances, in our prayers, and in our training. We want to be able to teach them. We want to have teachable men that we can support in training them, supporting whatever they lack. If we're to be a mission-minded church, we are to select a people and to be able to also support a people, to support them, to support them. We not only look for qualified people, but to support them like Apollos and like Zenos. And by support, what we can do is train them. Train them. Not just meeting their financial needs, but training them. Training them. Teaching them here. Do the pattern of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. One of our missionaries said to me a long time ago, he said, Pat, if you ever start a a ministry, make sure that ministry outlives you. Make sure that ministry outlives you. Work yourself out of a job. Train others. Train others. Always be entrusting the ministry to others. Train others to do the same work that you're doing. Train them. And what amazes me about training 
the training of Apollos, the training of Zenos, the training of Tychicus, the training of Titus, <clears throat> the training of Artemis, all their training was always happening through the local church. It was always through the local church. In fact, the very first training center, the very first seminary, if you could think of it that way, was in the local church. If you go back to Acts chapter 18, you see it there. In Acts, uh, I'm sorry, Acts 19, not 18. Acts 19, you see the very first training center in in Acts. It was in the, the, the church of Ephesus. It was always through the church. Always through the church. In Acts uh, 19, verse 8 to 10, we read this. And here Paul, again, is preaching at Ephesus. And he, as his tradition, he enters into the synagogue. That's the formal meeting place of the Jews, but then he's engaging them. And he says he continued speaking out boldly for three months. Where did Apollos get his boldness? Well, he followed his mentor, Paul, boldly for three months, reasoning persuading them, using every faculty that he has with his mind, persuading them about the kingdom of God, proclaiming the gospel. But when some were becoming hardened and were, and were not believing, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he left them, and then he would leave the synagogue, but then he would take away the disciples and reason daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What's amazing is here is in Ephesus, a training center starts to be developed. And it's the school is known as the school of Tyrannus. Imagine going to school for training under the school of Tyrannus. What kind of teacher would that have been? To be under Tyrannus. Where, that's where we get the word tyrannical. That's the kind of teacher. And how long would he teach? For two years. There's a, in our English translations, in our manuscripts, in our original texts, we follow a tradition of Bible texts. But there's one variant of the New Testament known as the Codex of Beze. The Codex of Beze. And the way 19 verse 9 is translated in that variant text, in that fork in the, the stream of biblical texts, New Te- Greek New Testaments, uh, it, the scribe who translated verse 9 puts it this way. In our English translation, it says that he, Paul, uh, reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus. That's what it says. He was reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. But in this variant of this Greek New Testament text, the scribe who wrote that Greek New Testament copy said this, that discoursing daily in the school of one Tyrannus from the fifth till the tenth hour... So the scribe knew the tradition of what was probably happening. So he, he puts in the time marker. How long did Paul teach? From the 5th to the 10th hour. That's roughly from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Five, five hours a day for two years of intensive training. Always through the church. The church was always teaching through Paul, through his ministry, in the school of Tyrannus for two years Five hours a day, that's approximately 3,000 hours of biblical training that were given to these men that were being trained, that were being supported. 3,000 hours. That's roughly equivalent to 200 units of seminary lecture today. In the seminary where I attended, I looked at how many units I took. It was only 151. I'm 51 credits, 51 units short 
50 units short of, uh, of this Tyrannus lecture. But here's the difference with many seminaries today that are springing up or ministries that are happening today. Most of these seminaries are always separate from the church. We're here from the very beginning. All training centers were always through the church. Why is the church vital for such training? So that the church can prove this man, this woman is fruitful. This man, this woman should be in ministry. This man, this woman should be doing this particular work. They should be trained. They are proven. They not only have an internal desire, but they are serving. They are fruitful. They are proven. There's always an accompaniment by the church. And you know what's encouraging, as, as this may seem bleak because there are seminaries that are operating independently of any churches. The encouraging thing is I see this happening where seminaries, training centers are, are always tightly knit to the church. I see this. I see this in the own, my own seminary in Vallejo, the Cornerstone Bible, the Cornerstone Seminary Church in Vallejo. And I see this also in our missionaries that we support. For example, Tom McConnell, you may not know this, but Tom McConnell is one of our missionaries in Rugby, England. In January of 2021, that's last year, Claudio Farina, one of the men from uh, Portugal, he trained and finished training after many years at his training academy that he established called Grace Bible Church Training Academy. So this brother, Claudio Farina, completed training. And now he's in, what Tom has done, he's invested himself to this man, Claudio. Why? Because Claudio will now be going back to his hometown of Madeira, Portugal, where he will now plant a church. He was fortunate enough, privileged enough to be able to invest and train this one brother and support him in all of his needs, financially, prayerfully, meeting all of his needs, housing, but also his spiritual needs in his training. Oh, may the Lord be, may the Lord use TCBC to be a place where God raises teachable men, humble men, and faithful men that we can support and train. And these are the kinds of men that we need to send and support. He says, diligently help them. The NASB says, the ESV says, speed Zenos and lawyer, the lawyer and Apollos. The idea is that the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking, that we're not to waste any more time, but as quickly as we can, support them. Support men that are teachable. Train them. And why do we train people? Not that they just stay here, but that they might go out there. That we might go out there. We love them so that we, that we meet all their needs, that nothing is lacking. None of their concerns would overwhelm them to the calling that they have been called to, which is maybe go out there to be, to be sent out. Free them up to serve Christ is our goal to diligently help them. And lastly, not only do we select men, not only do we supply men, but we must also send out men, send out the best people. We want to send out the best people. Verses, verse 12 and then 14 and 15. And we'll end here. Go to Titus. Go back to Titus. And this is how the book ends. He says, When I send... Artemis. He's actually sending them out. And then in 14, also our people must also learn to lead in good works to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. In verse 12, we see that the selected people are teachable, faithful, and humble, and they're supported, and now they are finally going to be sent. 
They're going to be sent. Paul said, I'm sending to you Artemis or Tychicus, along with Zenos and Apollos. You know, these were the best men that Paul is sending. These were the best men. Paul could have kept these men for himself. They could have remained in Ephesus. They could have remained there at the mega church of Ephesus. Remember, the church of Ephesus did everything right. They did everything right. They were a discipling church. They had many, many elders. They were witnessing. They were discipling. They were evangelizing. Why? Because the best men were there. The best and equipped, most trained men were there. And so these men were, could have been kept. But instead, Paul sends them out. He sends them out to plant churches. Titus goes out to plant a church. Where does Titus go? He goes to Crete. He becomes a missionary to go out to Crete. Apollos and Zenos, they go on their way. And the principle is simply this. The church can't keep the best for themselves. The church trains men, supplies men, but at some point must send men. And this is the culmination of the book of Titus. What does the healthy church do? Once it reaches the point of being a healthy church, it now must plant other churches. A church that's healthy must now send out other missionaries. This may mean, dear church, that we may one day have people in our church that have been trained, that have been supported, that have been gifted, and they may leave us. They may one day leave us here and do the work of missions elsewhere. And we see a little bit of that already with our dear friends, the Coggins, as they have gone back to the field in the Philippines. We see that modeled with Tom McConnell, who's sending his man, Fadio Farina, to Madeira, Portugal. We see that actually also in our pastor and friend, Nonilo, in Mindanao, where he is training up men and sending out men throughout all the islands in the Philippines. And I'm jealous for that. I, I would want that our church here, our little church here, do the same. That we would one day do what the New Testament prescribes for us to do, that is send out men. Someday TCBC may one, at some point plant a church. Have you ever thought about that? That one day, we as a small church of about 150 people to 200, depending on the Sunday, send out another church plant to begin a new work somewhere else. So what happens when we send out a man, a, a family? What happens? Here's what happens. You send them out, but that doesn't mean that we are no longer involved with them. Sending out uh, uh, men and women involves three things that we are to do. Look at verse 14. When you send a, a family out, it doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to do. In verse 14 it says this, And our hope must also... And our people, I should say, our people must also learn to engage in good works or to lead in good works, to meet pressing needs so that they, that is the church, will not be unfruitful. The first thing that the church is to do when they send out these men, these qualified, proven men for the ministry, is to join them. To join them. That may not mean go with them, but that may mean we can join them while we're here. While we're still here. Some of you may still be here while others may go out. And the way you join them is that you busy yourself engaging in good works 
so that they, that the church who remains, will not be unfruitful. That's a simple way of saying that when the church is engaged in good deeds of sending and supporting these missionaries, the church joins in the labor of these men. When we busy ourselves in supporting, in praying, in communicating, and hearing updates, and asking how we can meet the needs of our missionaries that have gone out, of our church planters that have gone out, we are actually joining them. We're actually joining the fruit of their labors so that when people are saved, we have a hand in that work of salvation. When people are discipled, we have a hand in that. When Tom McConnell sends me pictures of his Sunday school class on hermeneutics, we have a hand in that. When Nonilus gives us updates about the, the, the seminary in Mindanao and how another batch of students are graduating, we have a hand in that. When we support Tony Arns, who has planted a church in Folsom here in California, when he planted that church, we have a hand in that. Because we're joining them. We're doing the good works of supporting them so that they lack nothing. We join them. We join them. The second thing we can do is not just join them, but also greet them. Greet them. We share in their harvest and joining them, but we also, a practical way to support our missionaries is to greet them, the ones that we've sent out. He says this in verse 15. All who are with me, greet you. Greet those who are with us. Love us. Greet those who love us in the faith. Greet them. Greet them. You know, one practical way to be mission-minded is to follow the example of this verse. All who are with me, greet you. Just put yourself in, in the shoes of maybe a missionary or maybe put yourself in the position of a church planter. Let's put ourselves in the, the, the shoes of Titus. We're familiar with him, aren't we? You're in an island. Small island. And there's not a lot of people around you that are sound. In fact, there's a lot of people that are abusing grace. We looked at that a few, weeks, a few weeks ago. They're abusing grace. People are unrepentant. You're laboring. You're working hard. People are known in the island of Crete as liars, gluttonous, lazy beasts. That's what they're known for. That's the reputation. And here you are, you're laboring. It's been a few weeks, it's been a few months, you're excited, but the excitement starts to wear off. You start to feel lonely as a missionary. You start to feel forgotten. And so here, here's what Paul does to Titus, who must have been feeling this. He says, Titus, I want you to know that all the saints here with me, they greet you. You're not alone, Titus. You are not forgotten. When you greet the saints, when you greet the saints and you go to a different place, and when that missionary receives that email, or when that pastor receives a letter, when you visit that church, that is a that is a bomb to their soul. You ever see the look, oh, I'm so glad you're here. The seats have been empty this past few weeks. No one has been coming. It's just been my wife and my kids in the, in the, in the pews been very empty. It's been lonely. And I, I start to question, should I be doing this? And then when saints come and they visit, oh, that's refreshing. I know this because I have preached at churches. I've been asked to preach in very small churches. And you would think, that's a church? It's barely hanging on. But it is a church, nonetheless. It's a small church. And when they hear 
of a church. And, and when I say to them, the saints in Sacramento greet you. Oh, what an encouragement that is to the pastor. It reminds them, I'm not forgotten. I'm not forgotten. That I, that there are people praying for me. It seems as though the labor is, is not going anywhere. It seems that my task here is not bearing much fruit. And so here, when people greet me, when they greet me, oh, what an encouragement that is. What an encouragement that is. That they remind that they're not forgotten. And I want to remind you this morning that we have five missionaries, one pastor, and one seminary that we support. We have Mark Christopher, who preached from this pulpit not too long ago. He is a pastor who planted a church in Cape Town, South Africa. He has since given that church to his Titus, to another man by the name of, of uh, Solomon, a Denver Solomon. We also have, and what, what Mark has now done is he's now started a seminary in also Cape Town, South Africa. He's now training men to pray for Mark, greet Mark, write him a note on Facebook. He's always on Facebook. Greet him. Let him know that he is not forgotten, that the saints at Cornerstone remember him. Greet Nonilo. He's in Mindanao. Greet this brother. I mentioned to you that he, this is our brother who is now struggling with liver cancer. Glory may soon be upon him, and yet he is not worried at all. He wants to keep charging ahead. Pray for this dear brother. Greet him. If Stephen Williams in Pune, India, he came here also not too long ago, and he is a pastor who planted the church in Pune. He's also one involved in the seminary with his brother Sammy in the in the pastoral training institute. Pray for Ami Shimra. He is New Delhi, India. In the northern part of India, we have Stephen in the southern part of India. We have Ami in the northern part of India. Pray for him. Support him. Greet him. Greet him. Say hello to Ami. And then we have Tom McConnell in Rugby, England. Now we have Tony Arns in Folsom. Then we have the Cornerstone Seminary in Vallejo. Here's how you can say, how you can serve them is just say hello. How can we pray? How are things going? What's the greatest struggle that you're going through? Are there any needs that you may have? I want you to know that you are not forgotten. I, I want you to know that your labors, they are not in vain. We, as a church, support you. Join them. Greet them. And then lastly, pray for them. Pray for them. In verse 15, this is how it ends. He says, Grace be with you all. What is that? That's a prayer, isn't it? May the grace of God supply your every need. Grace be with all of you. Grace be with all the saints. This is Paul's prayer and greeting to Titus. Not just to you, Titus, but I want you to know that the grace of God is going to be with not just you, Titus, but with the entire church there. The picture is that we are to pray for them. Pray for these saints. That they are doing this work of missions. Because they are unable to do it apart from the grace of God. Because the grace of God that justifies, that sanctifies, and also also supplies all their needs. Just think with me. Consider, again, what would it be like for our church, our church, the Cornerstone Bible Church, to send out its own? Just look around. Look around in this room. Look around. Someday, the Lord may send out a family from this place to do the work of missions. 
or to do the work of church planting. As much as we love the fellowship, as much as we love the camaraderie, as much as we love the laboring together in this one place, maybe the Lord might raise up another church from among us. We are a 15-year-old church plant. By the grace of God, healthy. By the grace of God, missions-minded. By the grace of God, a, a church that's led by elders, committed to sound doctrine, discipling, serving, witnessing, all these things. But in the end, the church ought to be mission-minded and sending out people. Oh, may the Lord cause TCBC to plant a new church. I end you with this. John Piper said that there are three types of Christians. There's three types of Christians. He said that there are senders, there are goers, and then there are the disobedient. Which one are you? Are you the sender, are you the goer, or the disobedient? Paul said this. Go back to Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Notice this. What is it that fueled Paul? We looked at that. But there's a little part there that I want you to pick up on. And this is why missions, church planting is so vital for the church. Titus 1.1. Again, we read Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the full knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. God will use His church to reach the nations because God's elect are out there. God's elect are out there. God will save sinners. God will do that. He will save His people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The question is this. Will you join this missionary enterprise? Because they will get saved. The question is, will He use you or will He skip over you? Will you be involved in that enterprise or will you use someone else? Well, I pray that God would use our church in the sending, in the supporting, in the selecting of such men for the work of missions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your design for missions. We thank you for your design for how you raise up people you call people to yourself and you allow the church to recognize them not just by their giftedness but by their life by their fruitfulness by their qualification by their proven life that they have been privileged to train them and supply their needs and so a day would come Lord that we may have to send a family out from this place and I pray Lord would that day come quickly Get us ready for that moment, Lord. Help us to continue to train, not for the sake of training. Allow us to teach and equip men, not for the sake of equipping them, but for the sake of more work to be done that goes beyond this place. That more work to be done beyond the four walls of our church here. Oh, I pray, God, raise up men and women that you would send out and that Christ would receive all the glory from the labors that we do here at the Cornerstone Bible Church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.